Hello everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller and you can follow my adventures at tobymiller.org and I am very pleased to be here today with C.K. Lee who is a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. How are you C.K.? Pretty good. Pretty good? Yes. <laughs> Tell us if you could what you're up to right now, what you're working on, what interests you, what's animating Right now, well, these days I've been reading admissions files, which <laughs> I'm not very animated, animating or illuminating. Um, anyway, so I've been working on two projects in the past several years. Um, one is about China's involvement or investment in Africa. The other is about China's government um, in terms of how it absorbs popular unrest, um, protests by workers, villagers, property owners. We've heard a lot about these protests and activisms, but my interest is in how the government deals with them, um, how to absorb all these challenges, and sort of maintain. Um, by and large, a very stable regime, um, no matter how authoritarian it still is, is, is pretty stable, despite all these unrest. And so the question is, how come, what makes it so stable, and what does it do with regard to these popular unrest? Why don't we start with that and then get on to Africa, if that's all right? Does sure. That sound okay? and, yeah. I mean, you published several books on questions of labor unrest and other forms of civil society activism, if one could call that, political activism. One of the things that always puzzles and interests me is the claim made by many that China is sui generis and it's a type of its own, such that categories of this kind derived from other countries' models don't really apply. How do you see that? Well, it depends on what are you re what you're referring to in terms of you know China's uniqueness. You know, are you talking about its um, strategy of development? Are you talking about its methods of labor control? Are you talking about its um, is system of government? I mean, which... I'm referring to ideas like civil society and social movements and activism as deployed by those who wish to see more of that in China. Yeah. And whether those ideas and notions of political participation are germane, and also whether the assumed articulation that exists between capitalism and democracy is being disproved. Well, yeah, many people have sort of um, anticipated the, um, the rise of democracy as trying to become more capitalist. And, and this is a very big question for political scientists, especially sci political scientists who, who have tried to understand China from the experience of the West. And I think that's the wrong question to ask. Um, whether China will become democratic. Um, and there's the reason why I think it's the wrong question to ask is, is our notion of democracy is very narrowly defined by procedural democratic processes like the votes. I mean, China had votes. 
villages and <laughs> ordinary citizens, they, they can vote. But doesn't mean they have the same kind of democracy as the one that we know. So I, I think it's a very narrow and very confined way of asking general political change in China. Um, and it's always it's always very complicated once you get to know the society well. So for example, in the studies that I'm doing now, um, I'm looking at how the grassroots government, like the lowest level of the government, who have these are people who have to deal with literally, you know, confronting workers who block the road, peasants who would be, you know, going to do a sit-in in front of government building. I mean, they have to actually encounter these as as real people. And once you get inside the processes of how they absorb these protests and remove them from the scene and try to demobilize them, you realize that inside these processes of official citizen encounter, people are changed, both the officials and the citizens. So it's very difficult to say, you know, there is democracy or not. To give you an example, um, so at the beginning of many of these labor strife, labor protests, workers, they demand a whole lot of things. You know, they want salaries, they want to sometimes remove local officials. Um, but in the process of encountering with officials, these officials would reconstruct their views about what their rights should be, what they, sh what they can expect realistically. So it's and, and then gradually, these workers would realize that it's no use fighting for more than your, your salary. So people's rights consciousness, so to speak, would become something else. And, and officials could use lots of strategies to co-opt leaders of the unrest, of the protest, to turn these protest leaders into informants for the government, um, and, and thereby demobilizing the entire uh, episode of collective action. So through these processes of interaction and bargaining, protest bargainings, the workers and the farmers and property owners, they change their views of what their rights are. So it's not a, you know, so they became complicit to the whole idea of accepting yes. lower than legally the legal standard of compensation they become not so insistent upon their rights or they have a very changed view about their rights and 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 that's how the government have re maintained stability it's not by coercing these people but 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 really by showing them that this is not in your best interest there's no there's no chance that you can fight this government. It's, it's really through changing people's awareness and, and their definition of their rights and to demobilize them um, and to show them that if they cooperate with the government, they can get pretty well rewarded materially. And, and by the way, many people accept that. I mean, they don't see there's any viable alternative to the Communist Party. I mean, there's, if in the West there's a kind of tina, you know, there's no alternative. In China, too, there's another tina. The tina is an acronym that was used extensively by Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and their allies in the projects of authoritarian populism and neoliberalism in the 1980s, meaning there is an alternative to markets. Right, and in China there's no alternative to the Communist Party. 
And so with, there are lots of reasons why people would give up their original kind of struggle for right. And, and in the process, they become pacified and um, uh, quite willingly, you know. I, I've seen these people change from very righteous and, and you know, staunch defenders of our rights. And, and sooner or later, they become co-opted into the whole system and change their views. Now, I, I don't blame them. I mean, if you live in that kind of system and you, and you sort of weigh what are your possible and, and what is your best um, course of action, um, many people would yield to this kind of um, interest, which is that you, you get, you get um, compensation. Um, for what you're asking, and, and but but just stop it. You know the government don't want you to go on and, and make it a political event. And so, so I think we have to understand how China works in order to understand why there isn't more radical kind of demand for political change and what actually ordinary Chinese want from the system. I think in the in many Chinese studies literature, many many of the researches that people have done, um, they didn't have a chance to go inside these processes of state society negotiation, and so you get a very um, reified sense of you know people are all up for their rights. I, I don't think that's the correct depiction of what's happening in China. The New York Times, Financial Times, anytime you have. Uh, very sensitizing or, or sensational kind of protest events like the village, you know, some, a month ago in Guangdong where they actually chased the communist officials out. And you see all the major Western out news media making this such a model of revolution as if it is a continuation of the Arab Spring. It's, it's nothing like that. I mean, there's lots of intricate processes where actually almost the government almost managed to quiet the whole thing down. It was some negotiations that went wrong and somebody died. I mean, one of the protest leaders died. And that derailed, um, derailed the whole negotiation. I mean, otherwise it wouldn't have happened. So I, I think um, it's not really like every village who is dealing with um, land requisition is going to challenge the regime, or that people are very adamant about defending their land rights. I mean, they can be bought. Many people have been bought into submission. So there's a co-optation, yeah. and also a sense that the fruits of development and the fast takeoff spread so widely that what would the alternative be? In this case, it says no political alternative. That at least is most people's perception. But the Western fetish that binds together necessarily capitalism and democracy doesn't accept this. Um, hence the constant striving on the part of the bourgeois media to find kernels of freedom. Yeah, and, and, and without understanding what the nature of the resistance and what the nature of people's agency um, is in China, they have to really have to contextualize in a very unique kind of political economy of China and the historical consciousness of people. You know, they've got, they've benefited a lot, most of, most of them, 
in the past 30, 40 years. And you can't discount that kind of progress in the lived experience of the people. I'm not justifying the regime, but I, I really want people to understand if you were a Chinese living through the past 40 years, your lived experience of that regime would be very different from your critical consciousness about the regime. I, I make the, yeah, People have to make a very clear distinction between critical consciousness or your consciousness and your lived experience, uh, which oftentimes um, would be more accommodating than, than when you sit somebody down and talk about their awareness. You know, sometimes you live through a situation and in practice it's not so much about what you think, it's about what you do and, and how you react in a certain situation. And that level of reality is, is, is not easily captured by journalists or even, you know, academics. I mean, you, you really have to have very nuanced understanding of this different dimensions of, of subject. Because on the one hand, if you sit them down, they can talk from morning to night, criticizing the regime. On the other hand, as a lived reality, that con critical consciousness is just one aspect of what they are about. I mean, they are also about ad adapting, accommodating, um, you know, adjusting. So how do you go about finding those things out? Well, you have to do ethnography. You have to try to get inside these social processes as much as you can, as close to the people, as close to the actors in the action. I think I, I really emphasize in action, that is you really um, have to see how they behave and and how they act um, at a, at, in moments where they may not be critically conscious about what they themselves are doing. <laughs> So it's that's why there is a huge need for good ethnography to to understand the processes and people's experience uh, of resistance of authority of the state. So I, I think I would encourage my students if they have a chance to do ethnography of the state, especially in a country like China, uh, just to see how how the government uh, works um, and how it deals with and interacts with its people. And in, in the process, you see how people are transformed by that interaction. And it's not like you have to stay up there and society down there. And a lot of the power processes that are critical for our understanding of what China is happens when these, the state and society interact. Yes. But it's hard to get the opportunity to study it, I understand. What about Chinese academicians, Chinese Academy of Social Science people? Are they interested in these topics? Um, they are, but they, they work under a lot of constraints. Um, their careers are always on the line if they broach these kind of very sensitive topics. They even if they even if they even if they had the courage to study these issues and have the access to study these issues, they may not be able to be published because there'll be so many layers of censorship, um, some, a lot of times self-censorship, um, that they will not be published and they won't be able to keep their job. So there's a lot of constraints still um, with regard to what they can study and what they can publish. I think that's the key. Um, <laughs> be careful with it. <laughs> Now, 
but they know, but they know about these things. And I, when I do my study, I'm not a mainland Chinese, um, and but I talk to my colleagues a lot in China, so they 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 have very you know sharp ideas of what's happening underground, and. Um, so I learn a lot from them, but but in terms of they writing or doing the research and getting that published, um, they are constrained by the system under which you know they work and live. Whereas people like me, I mean, I'm not confined in in, in the way that they are. So I have more freedom to write and get get that published. How did you get interested in these questions? What drove you on? Well, I think the things that had, have, have been driving me since I was a grad student was to look at China's transformation through ordinary people's lives. So that really was why, you know, why I did my first book, which was about factory women workers in Shenzhen when Shenzhen was about to take off as the world's factory. These are places in the uh, southeast of China. In South China, um, where people often come from the north. Yeah, the first, the first generation of migrant workers who work for foreign investors in special economic zones. And through them, I was able to understand the impetus for migration. I was able to understand why these women, you know, many of them were underage. They were not even, you know, 16, which was the legal working age. Um, there was this impetus, this urge to leave the city, leave the villages, and go to the factories. And and I also was able to understand the changing government. I mean, at that time, the government was very different from the government that later on became so open to foreign investment. Anyway, so it was really about how you can understand China's political economic transformation by looking at some critical social classes experience inside the system. So I think that has been, that has been my driving force for my academic work. And after writing my book on um, labor protest in, in the northeast and in the southeast of China, the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt of China, I realized that I need to understand how the government handles all these unrest. Because I that book I looked at protests from the perspective of workers, you know, why they were able to stage so many demonstrations, why didn't they go further? Why didn't they radicalize? And and after that, I realized that a very big part of the picture that I still don't understand is how the government absorbs them. Not just work workers' protests, because by the time I finish my book, it's not just workers, but also villagers who have lost the land and property owners. Property owners who have the middle class who have purchased their part, uh, condominiums but still have to deal with the very powerful developers and the local government who um, violated their, their property rights, for example, by building another <laughs> new condo high rises um, in a green area that was supposed to be green, uh, but then they just you know, built another tall building for sale. So it's. Um, I moved from studying protesting workers to studying how the state handles um, right. these. So, but, but it's still trying to understand, you know, China through 
different social classes and their experience with the economy, with foreign investment, and with the state, of course. And after your undergraduate work in Hong Kong, you came to Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. Yeah. And work with Michael Barroway, I'm assuming. So, yeah. Because I noticed these questions are very related to some of what he looks at. Yeah. Uh, and also, you've published on the idea of public sociology. So, it was his idea, actually. <laughs> public sociology was his idea, not my idea. But I was just using his idea to see what are the limitations in China if you want to pursue public sociology in China. Yes, yes. And so, when you go, when you're in China, uh, are you perceived, would you say, as a US-based scholar, or as a Hong Kong person? I mean, how are you understood? What does that imply <laughs> to your access to people in sports? Well, it depends on who you're talking about. For my academic colleagues, you know, they know full well my background. Um, I was born in Hong Kong, I was raised in Hong Kong, I went to the US for my graduate studies, and I'm now based in the US. So the, my background is, is really transparent to many of my colleagues. Um, but when I have to do my field work um, with state officials, sometimes it depends on what we or I perceive as the best um, identity that for me to assume. So I have multiple identities that I can choose. I can present myself as a Hong Kong person. Um, I speak Cantonese, so for me to do research in the South, where there are quite a few people who speak Cantonese, actually that's an advantage for me as a you know, Hong Kong native. Um, and then sometimes in Beijing, it depends. I mean, there are people who want to have connection with the United States, then my identity as a U.S. professor would help. Um, but most of the time, with officials, with um, for this last study that this current study I'm doing, you know, looking at how they maintain stability. Um, my identity is a professor at Tsinghua University, which I am. I, I teach a class there every other year. So I have another identity as a professor at Tsinghua. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's kind of um, convenient for me to, to just say that I'm, also, I'm a professor at Tsinghua. And what about here in the United States where there's a sinocentrism an obsession. I mean, not only here, but yeah. plenty of other so-called Western countries. Leads to us obsession of, of China, with China? Yeah. or with some fantasy of China. Yeah. So, how is your work perceived here? With Depending on who you're talking about. I mean, people on the left they like my work. I think more than mainstream sociologists um, so it, it really depends on which 
part of the academia. I'm not talking. really thinking about academia so much. I mean the state, civil society, all places that actually matter. Uh, foreign policy magazine, foreign affairs magazine. Yeah. Oh, I see. The discourse that is important in the major foundations and foreign-operated think tanks of the United States and the State Department. The governments in waiting yeah. on the Republican and Democrat sides, the advisors to capital. You know, these institutions that are on a daily basis obsessed with China yeah. uh, and their servants in the bourgeois media of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Yeah, yeah. The Tom Friedman world of punditry populated by people who don't speak relevant languages don't spend time there, but miraculously uh, marriage seems to me to dominate public discourse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in, 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 in that kind of discourse you see China being portrayed or perceived as a threat a lot of times. And um, they are concerned about labor, but only with regard to the cost, labor cost to American businesses. They're concerned with labor protest and the potential instability that could cause um, the Chinese government and American investment there. So I think in the when when labor unrest was really. Um, Intense in the uh, early 2000s. Um, the CIA organized several workshops and wanted me to go and, and tell them what exactly was happening with um, the labor unrest situation in the northeast of China and also in the south. At that time, it was mostly state-owned enterprises and workers who become unemployed, and they were. There were lots of protests, and one of them, one of them actually uh, was described as the largest popular protest after Tiananmen, and it was in 2002. So at that time, around that time, you know, the CIA and lots of foundations in Washington, they were very interested in knowing what exactly get these people organized and who were organizing these. And so. They pay attention to my work at that time. Um, I spent a year at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, writing my book and, and you know the the, the, um, the policy people there. Um, you know they were very eager to know, um, but their concern was really about stability and whether you know there was this question of whether China is going to collapse or you know somehow there's some internal uh, crisis that is going through. So, um, yeah, but, but my book, my work isn't really attracting too much attention because, you know, people are not concerned about work, workers as such. I mean, they're concerned about the cost of labor. And, <laughs> and I write about workers' lives and how they suffer through the process of restructuring and all that. I don't think people really care. <laughs> Not you, but if you ask me about the mainstream media, I mean... But at least in sociology, in this country, there's no doubt your work's gotten a lot of attention. You've won several very prestigious awards for your books. Right. Well, that's the people who do labor studies. You know. They understand how, you know, they, 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 they're concerned about Chinese labor because, after all, the Chinese labor force is the largest of the world, and so you know anything happens to it, or anything that doesn't happen to it, is a big problem for the world 
labor force yeah. and labor movement. And so, um, yes, I got recognition, but I don't think beyond the field of labor studies, um, my colleague, for example, they're not that concerned. I mean, they even think that, well, why do you study labor protests in China? They, they don't even manage to um, form a union or form their own union or their own movement. That was the question I got when I gave my job talk at UCLA. And there were some demographers who just say, this is not an important question for China. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Great to get some supportive and knowledgeable <laughs> listeners offering such stimulating <laughs> question <laughs> forms of interrogation. So, no, I don't think the mainstream academia is, is very concerned uh, about China. I think when they... When they're concerned about China, is really about the um, the business aspect, the yes. business impact of it. Look at this um, this past two days in the New York Times. They run a very high-profile story about iPhone and how it is made. And of course, they feature the horrible conditions of working of, for the workers in in in, in Moscow. But if you read the first um, story, the first um, first investigative report of that series. Um, the reporter was saying that, you know, um, labor cost for iPhone is like down to 8% of the total cost and, and it's so cheap that it's not important for Apple. But they don't really, I mean that was a, from an economist perspective, but they don't really understand or ask the question of why labor is so cheap. I mean that's the question for, actually very important for Apple. But. But, but for the economist or the, the reporter who was doing the story, they, he basically said, well, it's only 8% of the cost, therefore it's not that important. And so they focused on supply chain, you know, why Apple is being made in China is because of all the supply chain that, that is already there. So if you want to change the glass of your iPhone um, overnight, they can change it because there's so many suppliers who can choose from, they can do it very cheaply and quickly, efficiently. And so they say, you no, know, labor is not important, it's cheap. The cost is too low for, for Apple to worry about it. So, so you can say they are concerned about labor, Chinese labor, but, but the, the way they're concerned about it is a very narrow kind of economic calculation and, and, and not really about you know, the system that produced that kind of, of cheap labor. And I think that's the question that a social scientist or people who want to understand why China, Chinese labor is so cheap should get behind, you know, should look at the states, should look at the migration system um, that constitutes this kind of cheap labor force. Uh, it's not natural. It's not because China has many people and therefore the labor is so cheap. And can we turn now to Africa, because this is a topic of great interest and great importance, significance for China. Yeah, and for Africa too. Right. So, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? Um, well, that's a very complicated question because there's so many aspects to it. Okay, let me tell you what my interest in this topic is. Um, I'm interested 
in the labor question of Chinese capitalism as it moves to Africa. So China is at a stage where it needs to go out of China, Chinese capital, to find new raw, source, uh, raw material market um, to unload is surplus capital to unload the surplus labor, to unload the surplus capacity. And you, if you look around the world, Africa happens to be a very important site for that kind of um, going out. Because um, Africa has lots of resources, Africa has untapped labor market. Africa is booming in a way because of um, the commodity boom um, driven by Chinese and India demand. And so, so Africa is itself a very big domestic market for a lot of the manufactured goods for China. So there is a very <clears throat> significant kind of conjuncture for both China and Africa that they need and can use each other. Africa can use Chinese capital, um, can use Chinese technology and skilled labor. And that's what you see. Um, the reason is because of this complementarity right now, at this point, because Africa has been ignored by the West um, for many years. Now, the IMF and the World Bank haven't ignored Africa. They actually have done tremendous damage. So they haven't ignored the continent. Um, but in terms of investment, you know, U.S. investment is, is almost invisible. Um, there are lots of ACE projects, donation, but not really in terms of investing in manufacturing capacities. Um, and so China really is, is a source of a new round of, you know, uh, industrial investment and commodity investment. And so I think that it's, it's the timing of both Africa looking for alternative sources of investment and then China looking for places to invest. And so there, there could be structural reason for Africa to break out of its dependence on commodities export and to have industrial capacity. And that's what I'm seeing now in Zambia. There is a special economic zone being built by the Chinese and this is going to be replicated in different African countries. And the promise was for China to, um, to send some of its factories so that they, so that they can use the copper that is extracted from Zambia to make into copper products now I'm not saying this is not colonial I don't want to go into that you know controversial concept of colonialism we can talk about it you know later if you want to but I want to say that there may be a historical opportunity with very heavy cost to Africans but it is in China's interest to develop Africa because they need that kind of outlet. Um, the cost is to labor that African workers working for these Chinese enterprises, um, they have to endure a very despotic kind of labor regime in, that is being exported from China. And so you hear a lot about labor discontent and, and complaints about Chinese exploitation of workers um, from Zambia, for example. Um, it is true 
On the other hand, I think Chinese investors are not the only one who are exploiting African labor. So, is this is in, is global? You know, is everyone? And it's a complicated story as to why the Chinese become targeted as the worst exploiters, whereas everybody else, including the Indians, now the Indians are very big there too. Nobody talked about the Indians. And I think it has to do with the Western discourse against China. I really think there is some racism there in, in the media's report about Chinese engagement in Africa. Because if you really look into these different countries, there are many different kinds of foreign investment doing exactly what China is doing, but they don't get the kind of bad press that China is, has been receiving. And I think if they're really, I, I think if human rights organizations who have been targeting China, if they're really concerned about labor rights, they should criticize everybody and not just the Chinese. What is it about Zambia that particularly draws you in? Well, Zambia is the largest copper producer in Africa. So I'm interested in the extractive industry, the Chinese extractive investment. So I need to find a country which is a significant commodity producer. So F uh, Zambia fit that um, criterion. It is the largest copper producer in Africa. The second, and it is very important, is because it has been chosen as the site for, for this um, first Chinese-run special economic zone. And once this is built, there'll be five or eight more in other African countries. So this is like the prototype. So I like to see from the very beginning. I want to look into the processes of how, how these things are being negotiated, what kind of leverage African governments have, and, and what kind of leverage the Chinese have. So, I, you know, Zambia is, is a really critical case in that sense because it, is, it will be the first one um, to have this kind of Chinese-run special economic zone. And um, thirdly, because Zambia has been a very close ally of the Chinese um, since independence, since the 60s. So basically, theoretically, China has the strongest support government support and popular support because people remember the Chinese uh, help very favorably, uh, fondly, building that railroad, uh, Tassara Railroad. So, I mean, the conditions are the most favorable, you could argue, in Zambia. And if the Chinese encountered resistance, even in that kind of favorable environment, you could make a case that actually, you know, they will they will encounter many, many more problems in other parts of Africa. It's not like because China has money and capital that it can do whatever it wants, which is the kind of illusion the West has that, oh, because there's tons of investment coming in from China, China is dominating uh, all these African countries. I think anything is, is you know, like, this is nothing like this in, in, in on the ground. Um, Zambia illustrates it very well this year, last year, when the opposition party won the election. And the opposition won the election running a very anti-Chinese kind of platform. And so you can see Chinese investment actually is operating under lots of constraints. It's not like because you have billions of capital and therefore they're going to be the new colonial uh, power there, they can control everything. I mean, this is 
this is an oversimplified kind of story, and and I think the Chinese have to deal with African governments who, which have become quite independent of foreign capital. I mean, they're still beholden to them in many ways, but you can't deny that there's democracy in Africa. There's you know multi-party election. And workers are citizens who have the votes, and so there's there's some kind of constraints that you don't hear on the Chinese if you just read the Western press because they want to make China look like this this powerful and, and menacing force, um, and which it, it it is not. When you go and examine what's happening on the ground, we've both used this, this term Western. What do you include under that moniker? Um, UK, US, um, some European countries. I'm look. I'm basically thinking in terms of the, the media uh, from these countries, and um, and the governments. For example, the US Congress actually has has several reports written, and the Human Rights Watch, for example, international organizations, uh, human rights organizations. Um, they the Human Rights Watch has um, recently, like last month. In December, published uh, a very uh, critical report about Chinese labor practices. Maybe you have heard of that. Um, it's it's a it's a very poorly written report. Uh, the data and the argument they don't they don't really match. They don't and and it's, there are a lot of biases going into that report. And um, and I think they are sort of. Talking the Chinese, maybe because they think because they're the biggest, but they are not actually the biggest. I don't know what's behind the, what's the motivation behind it, but um, you can look at both government and civil society and the media, and all of them have orchestrated um, a kind of anti-Chinese discourse. That raises a question for me of nationalism, yeah. xenophobia these other questions. Um, but just spinning it round for a moment, some of my friends in Hong Kong say to me that Chinese nationalism is very powerful, uh, like all kinds of nationalism, xenophobic, and often specifically assertive or aggressive against the United States. Do you see any signs of that? And how is nationalism in China? I mean, yeah. And how does nationalism play out amongst the workers' movements that you study? Well, let me talk about the, the workers. The protests that I've studied, usually they, the workers themselves, they don't really, when they were engaged in this kind of. Um, unrest and, and mobilizations. Nationalism is is furthest from their mind. I mean, there's nothing much involved there. I think nationalism um, is more salient in terms of government's reaction to some of these protests. So, for example, last year or year before, um, there's a, a spate of um, protests um, by workers in Honda, the Honda factories. And um, and you can tell it's mainly foreign investment that that um, the government um, not targeted, but they let these workers go as far as they could in these foreign.
companies. And I think they want to send a warning to foreign uh, companies that uh, you know the Chinese government is protecting its workers. They're sending the signal to say that we want to boost um, workers' consumption um, capacity. They want their workers to be consumers as well, and, and we are going to raise uh, minimum wage uh, for the next 10 years. I think they, I don't know whether you want to call this nationalism, but I think they, they really uh, is very obviously targeting foreign companies to make that kind of message. Um, and, um, but nationalism is not what motivates workers to fight against the government or their employers. I've read some reports about white collar workers are the ones who are this, the popular support for the Chinese rhetoric of nationalism. So, so they are the ones who serve on, serve the internet and, and, and use whatever social media to coordinate and to actually stage some of these anti-Japanese, for example, anti-Japanese protests. So the workers are not the social basis or, or the force for Returning to Zambia and ideas of national identity there, yeah. Chinese investors and the government that are involved, are they showing sensitivity to ideas of cultural relativism, of sovereignty, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on? Is that part of their strategy? Well, their strategy is twofold, I think. Their strategy to the um, to the to the Zambian elite is very different from the strategy to the Zambian workers. To the elite, basically, they co-opt them, they try to bribe them, they give them all kinds of perks and aid. Or, you know, they build them roads, they build them a government building, they build them hospitals. Um, they build them lots of things. So basically, they talk to the government. What do you want? You, know, you want a, a um, an additional address to your legislature building will build it for you. They have regular meetings that, you know, where the Chinese will send high officials to Zambia and ask, what's your government's urgent need? So there is some kind of clientelism, patron clientelism going on at the elite level. Um, so a lot of times you see Zambian officials would be invited to visit China, everything paid for by the government. And so the elite is kind of co-optation and, and patron-client kind of ties. Um, for the ordinary people, they actually are very sensitive to cultural difference. The Zambians are different from the Chinese. and. And by talking about culture, they actually they sort of elide the class interest. That is the real issue. So they would say, oh, we Chinese work harder than you Zambian workers because just culturally, you know, culturally we are very in industrious and, and we, we, we want to get ahead. But you guys, your culture is very lazy, very laid back. You, there's a colonialist kind of discourse that I hear all the time and I, I wonder where people got it. It is like the Chinese are saying, like British colonialists before them were saying Zambians would sit under the tree, they sit under the mango tree and the fruit would drop. <laughs> 
and they will eat them and when they are done they go to sleep or they don't they, they're not motivated to to earn more to you know to make better lives for themselves so it's culture to them they basically think of their Zambian workers as kind of hopeless I mean they're lazy they're indolent and, and you, you can't do anything about it and we are better with just culturally more superior but what is the real issue there is really class conflict because class interest is in, in Chinese managers and companies' interest to, to make the workers work harder and to complain about them being lazy. And from the perspective of Zambian workers, there's no interest to work hard when your money, the, the, the wage you get is so little and there's no security to your job. So what gets passed for as cultural difference is actually class conflict. But they show a lot of sensitivity to that, <laughs> if that's what you mean. <laughs> I don't remember that part. What about the vexed question that was raised a lot <laughs> in debates about human rights after 1989 of Asian values? And the idea of the individualism at the bottom of some definitions of human rights being inimical to the essence of Asian life. This is something that the Chinese government didn't talk about much before 89, or talked about quite a lot afterwards. But if you notice, they talked about human rights too, and every year, or every other year, they would come up with a report about human rights condition in the US or in China. Yes, so actually they they buy into it. They've always been critical of racism in the United States. They used human rights discourse against the war in Vietnam, the treatment of African Americans. Yeah, yeah, an African American situation um, in the US. But if you notice they they actually have um, insisted on their own definition of human rights. And it has always been about um, the collective rights to development, the right to livelihood, a social right, not political right. Um, right to uh, improvement in your, in your living standard. Um, and that they claim to have done an excellent job in guaranteeing a large number of people, lifting people out of poverty. And so, I mean, they, I think they, they, it is very interesting and I think it's healthy for the world to have different views about, you know, the definitions of human rights. Although, to, I don't agree with the Chinese in sort of postulating this mutually exclusive notion that you can only have social rights but not the social right to exist or your livelihood without you know political right of individual freedom these two are not contradictory but they pose it as if it is contradictory but I get but I think the idea of having collective rights to existence um, is an important corrective to the Western understanding 
that individual political liberty is about everything else. I don't think you can talk about your political individual rights without a decent meal every day and secure livelihood. So I think it's a, it's a good corrective, but, but the point is to you know, stop them from making these two things mutually exclusive. Yes, and of course when the United Nations Covenant was drafted, they were both in there for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Not the final versions. What about the idea that there is something distinctively Asian? About what? About the, the rejection of individualism. Oh my god, yeah, because... Like if you go to China or other Asian countries, I don't think people think that as a Western thing, individualism. Many young people, many intellectuals um, wouldn't agree that this is that they, they don't want individual freedom or liberty. But again, it's, it's, it's this they want that, but also this kind of communal commitment and, and the collective um, commitment. I, I don't think it's this being rejected or that Asians self-orientalize themselves to say, hey, we are just so Asian that we won't, we won't we don't want your stuff. I think most people want both. They, they want the, the best of the U.S. kind of system and, and worldview, but also they can see that there are good things um, coming out from Asian cultures. And, and this day and age, I don't think you can say this is Asian and that is the U.S. because we are we have been sort of going through these global traffic of ideas and, and values for so long I don't I don't for me I, I find it very hard to point to which part of me is Asian which part of me is is totally reified you know all these nominal categories oh absolutely but they're quite sticky they're sticky because you need to simplify the world in order to understand it. As Marx almost said. But no, I think it depends on who you talk to, and and sometimes Asian people, Asian governments would would adopt or would, would try to hide behind those Asian value things. When they are being attacked in some way, or when it's always there's some purpose behind invoking that kind of rhetoric and, and, and category. So the best thing we can do is really to understand in each situation when they invoke that kind of truth, what were they reacting to? Right. So I think really there's a lesson here, or a series of lessons you've given us that. It's very important to examine local specificity and the materiality of particular sites. In the context of something that is non-local, because these local sites are shaped by things that are, that are sort of extra-local. So it relates to ideas of multi-sited ethnography uh, and relates also to ideas of studying up. Studying up and putting things in the context. I mean, I want to make this very clear, and, and I think it's an important point that people usually think if you do ethnography, then you're only looking at the micro level. 
And I think that's a wrong conception of what ethnography is or can do. Um, ethnography is part of our our access to reality. But reality is much more complex than the micro and the directly observable. Reality is also shaped by some structural forces, historical forces that that won't show up as tangible and, and tactile kind of you know human agency and, and, and they, they exist they're objective but they are not material and that you have to get to that those forces and structures by lots of reading and, and other people's knowledge by history uh, by theory so I think it's it's not I don't think ethnography alone can lead you to very deep Dude, understanding of the meetings, I would vote for them in a second. No, thank you Yo, very Min. much for that, CK. <laughs> I'm hoping that Dude, when you finish awesome your research in Zambia, you'll come back to the park <laughs> okay. like share with us hey, some of your findings. Wait, is that okay. the one where they, in order to follow Wait, in order to follow